You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com. All right, let's pray. Jesus, thank you for uh, the work of the gospel here in our community. God, thank you for uh, just raising up people who are seeking to follow you with all of their lives. Lord, thank you for gathering people together this evening on this super hot Sunday when many of us uh, are probably coming and thinking about maybe the cold beverage we could be having in our backyard rather than sitting in a hot church. So God, thank you for just gathering people. I know that's a work of your spirit, and so thank you for doing that. But I pray for the preaching of God's word. I pray, God, as, as I preach and as I teach here, God, that you, um, that you would just take the word and that you would just make it come alive in front of us. But I pray that you would give us eyes to see, not eyes that are always seen but never seen, but eyes that actually see um, spiritually. God, I pray that you would give us ears to hear, not just ears that are hearing but never hearing, but ears that actually hear the voice of your Holy Spirit as you call out to us. God, I pray that you would do that. I pray, God, that you would warn us and correct us and remind us of how good life is as we place our hope in you. Lastly, God, I pray that you would let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. Question for us tonight that I want you to wrestle with for just a minute. How many times have you asked yourself this question? When will the hardship end? When will the difficulty be over? When will this suffering season that I'm in come to an end? How often have you thought that? Do you ever catch yourself just lamenting this question deep within maybe the, your soul or within your heart, asking, when will this be over? When will this be done? It's easy enough for all of us to agree that the world that we live in and this life that we live is not without its difficulty, its hardship, its pain, and its suffering. The political landscape around the globe as we just Survey the political landscape is an absolute train wreck, if you ask me. Poverty is at an all-time high. Crime rates are climbing day by day. But there's new terror organizations that seem to pop up on the horizon every day. One tragedy after the next seems to flood our news feeds and our TV screens. Where you look, marriages and relationships seem to be on tilt. People are at war with one another. The world, the world is at war with itself in reality. So the question I catch myself asking often, and I assume that some of you, if you have a heartbeat, have to be asking this question times two. When will the hardship end? When will the suffering come to the end? When will these difficult seasons and times be over? When will God bring total restoration and reconciliation and healing to this world around us? In a sense, we're asking this question. When will God's kingdom come? When will it be complete? When will it not be the way that it is now? 
When will we no longer face the oppression of terror? When will we no longer struggle in our marriages and our friendships? When will we no longer struggle with depression? When will we no longer struggle with sin and the effects of sin? When will our bondage to sin and the effects of sin be completely laid to waste and destroyed and, and broken completely for us? These questions, these questions that I'm asking, I'm hoping to elicit those questions for us tonight to focus our attention in a certain direction because I think that these questions are the implications of the deep desires within the souls of the disciples and the Pharisees who were gathered around Jesus in our text. I think they come to Jesus and they're simply asking him about the coming of the kingdom of God. Luke 17, uh, starting in verse 20, look at it with me. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. Nor will they say, look, here it is or there, for behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. He said to the disciples, the days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. They will say to you, look there, or look here. But do not go out and follow them, for as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. But first... He must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Remember... Lot's wife, whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. I tell you, in that night, there will be two in one bed, one will be taken and the other left. There will be two women grinding together, one will be taken and the other left. And they said to him, where, Lord? He said to them, where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Here's my confession. First off, if I got to pick and choose what I get to preach every week, I would not preach this text. Here's the deal. Like this series for us was laid out like three years ago. We're two and a half years into this thing. Like it's by God's providence that I get to, not have to, get to preach this text to us tonight. But if there's one text in all of the Gospel of Luke, this would be the one that I would not want to preach. And in fact, if I got to choose every week on Thursdays what text I was going to come and preach to you guys, I would run screaming from most of the texts that come up as we preach through these series. 
Because the reality is that we chose to be a church that works through books of the Bible slowly. We call this expositionally. Part of our membership class is to be expositional listeners, to listen for the meaning of the text as we work through it word by word. And what that means is I'm locked in ahead of time to preach a text before it comes up. And you want to know what all the dead theologians say about this passage in Luke? You want to hear this? Hardest passage in the Gospel of Luke. Luther, Spurgeon, Edwards, all these guys are like, this is the toughest text to preach. So I'm not saying that because I want you guys to be like, oh, poor pitiful Pastor Joe, he has to preach this text. I just want you guys to hear like where I'm at as I come into this text, I'm really freaking excited to preach this text. Because as I struggled my way through this passage, let me tell you, this is a passage that I think even in study for us, we have a tendency just to read through and read past and be like, oh, oh, right, okay, yeah, yeah, uh, uh, where the dead bodies are, there's where the vultures got. That makes sense, Jesus. You're smoking dope or what? Like, what's going on? Like, okay. He's talking about the kingdom. He's bringing up the whole Noah thing, the whole Lot thing. Fire and sulfur falling down from heaven. I mean, I already get told that I talk too much about sin anyways, right? Right? Don't I already hear that enough? Like, you are too much of a beastie, prophetic, spitting all over the place, yelling at everybody, type of preacher. Like, you kind of offend us a little bit. That's okay because I get offended sometimes too. So here I am and here we go, right? Here's what's happening in this passage. After all that ranting, and by the way, I preached this once already this morning, so this usually happens when I get to preach it twice. What, what a privilege. It's what's happening in this passage. There's five kingdom warnings in this passage. What Jesus is doing is he's simply warning us. When he gets asked this question about, hey, when will the kingdom come? I want you to put yourself in the place of the Pharisees and the disciples surrounding Jesus. Something that we have a really hard time connecting with. Okay, Think about that. Hard time connecting with is where the disciples and the Pharisees are with Jesus. Because they are living in occupied territory. You and I, we don't live in an occupied country. We occupy this stinking country. And actually, most of the time, if you think about it, you think about third world countries, we occupy those countries. Okay? We are an American nation. We are free. We are big. We are loud. We are proud of it. We like to carry our guns and smoke our cigars and whatever, right? At the end of the day, my point is this. we got to put ourselves in the place of the original hearers of this text and understand that, 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 that who Jesus is talking to is a group of people that are in occupied territory. They're occupied by Rome. Rome is an oppressive group who is there, and they are causing, causing pain and suffering and hardship. And so what Israel has always done is has always looked forward to the coming of the Messiah. And here's Jesus claiming to be the Messiah. And so they're like, man, it's going to happen. You're going to overthrow Rome. You're going to take over and set up your kingdom. And you're going to like get your little vice presidents and your cabinet. And Rome's going to be gone. We're going to be free. That's what they're thinking when they ask this question. Somebody said they're looking at it all wrong. When, when Jesus answers their question, he answers it with five kingdom warnings. Have you ever gotten, ever gotten a speeding ticket? Ever got pulled over by a cop and gotten a warning for speeding instead of a ticket and been like, thank God. See, that's the way we should all approach warnings. There's a problem. Our hearts don't approach warning with reception. You should write that down. Our hearts don't 
approach the concept of warning with reception and joy. We hear warning and we're like, ew, who do you think you are? Right? Isn't that right? Yeah. Who do you think? You, you can't judge me. Only God can go, yeah, yeah, read your Bible. Okay, just read your Bible and quit taking texts out of context, right? Right? Like, we, we should be receptive to warning. Because this is part of what God does all throughout the scriptures is corrects us and warns us and rebukes us as part of the job of a church family is to lay out these warnings. And what Jesus does is he warns us. I've got a warning from your spouse for a certain behavior that you should probably think twice about in the future. So my wife loves watching um, uh, NCIS. She's like, oh, great. He's using me as an illustration. I, I, I can already tell she's going to warn me here shortly. So um, she loves to watch NCIS. And because of her, I love to watch NCIS's too. And so we're kind of goofy about this. But she records it, and then we watch it. The character in that show, his name is Gibbs. If you've ever seen it, right? Gibbs' favorite thing to do is to walk up behind people, smack them inside the back of that. This is called a Gibbs smack. It's a warning for him. Get your crap in order. That's a warning. You're about to get hit harder. So my wife, consequently, loves to Gibbs slap people. <laughs> so, so when I'm getting out on a limb, I get Gibbs slapped. And it's, and it's good for me. I received that warning, okay? Sometimes I cuss. I'll be honest. And according to scripture, if you cuss, you're going to hell. Unless you trust in Christ. That's a whole other conversation for another day. <laughs> Ever get warned from your banker because you keep running your account in the hole? Ever get warned from your employer because you keep showing up to late, late to work too often? Ever get a warning from a close friend who's concerned about what's happening deep within your heart and soul? Now, if you've ever received a warning, then you know that warnings are meant to bring some issues to your attention to the surface. That's what warnings are meant to do, is to bring something to the surface so that you and I can look at it. And the issues that need to be fixed within each of us are not necessarily behavioral modification issues or thinking thingism modification issues. Let me just stop right there because y'all are like, oh, what's he saying? So, so behavior modification is like, oh crap, I look at pornography again. Oh crap, I got, I got angry at somebody again. Oh crap, I got trashed again. Oh crap, I slept with that dude or that chick again. I gotta start getting that stuff in order. True, true, like, like, Jesus needs to heal that in you, and you need to start behaving in a way that honors God, right? Right? We'd agree with that. But let me just tell you something. You get out of balance, and that's all you focus on. You want to know what you become? You become a legalist who thinks that everything is based upon all the externals, while on the inside you are absolutely sick and you're an absolute wreck. It's what Jesus said to the Pharisees when he said in another passage, Hey, you look really nice and shiny and clean on the outside. Yeah, you look really good. But you know what? On the inside, you are a dead, rotting grave. So that's behavioral modification. That's not what Jesus is trying to bring up primarily in this passage. Okay? Our other, our other bent, the other ditch we often get into is what I just call thinking thingism modification. Uh, it comes out of a book that we were given from Porter Brooks that's sitting in my bathroom. I keep reading it every time I'm in there. <laughs> leave it at that. <laughs> so this whole idea behind thinking, theism, modification is this. Here's, here's what we think. 
We think that, therefore I think, therefore I am, what I think, therefore I am, right? Right? So if I can just change the way that I think, then my life will change. And Christians here, Christians are really good at this one. Okay? They, they take a passage out of Ephesians and they're like, hey, be ye, got to do the KJV, okay? Or be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind. Think differently. Yeah, guess what? Guess what? Just lift it out of context. And you're using that one as a beating rod for everybody around you. You haven't read the rest of it. Go back and read the entire chapter. Because the entire chapter makes it clear that it's not just about what we think. It's not just about what we do. It's actually about our hearts. It's actually about the desires and the affections and the longings of our hearts. That is the issue. It's the issue all throughout scripture. Because our lives flow out of, the, of our hearts. Like, like our hearts are like a spring flowing up, right? Our lives are the proof of what's going on deep within our hearts and our souls. You got struggles behaviorally? Great. Quit looking at your behavior and start looking at your heart and asking, what is it that you're hoping? What is it that you desire for? Where is it that you find your joy at? Because when you find where you find your joy at and you find that what you're trying to find your joy and your hoping is actually broken, and you find that you got idolatry just growing in your heart. When you start thinking that all the things that you think and learn, and this comes from a pastor, right? I spend at least 20 hours of my week studying love, thinking about things. Love thinking about things. Love thinking about ideas. Love thinking about concepts. How you put words together. How do you build principles, right? Love doing that is a problem. It won't save me. It won't save me should be transformed by the way that you think and your behavior should be transformed too but neither one of those things are going to get transformed until your heart goes through an utter change like a total makeover and so as these guys come to jesus this question i think he gives these five warnings to get below the surface what about behavior what about what you think it's about the longings the desires of your heart Jesus gave us stern warnings. I, I say all that as a lead-in and a preamble to the five warnings I'm going to try to preach in 15 minutes because I want you to see what Jesus is warning us about. I want us to hear it. I want us to see it. I want us to live in this. Understand that when I lay out these five warnings, this is the word of God speaking. Warning number one, don't miss out. Warning number one out of verses 20 to 21 is just simply this. Don't miss out. Like Jesus warns the Pharisees not to miss out on what's happening in their midst because of their desire to have all the answers. Pharisees were very proud of having all their ducks in a row. They're super addicted with having all the right answers for everything. I keep saying this over and over again, man. The Pharisees knew more Bible verses than you and I can ever hope to know. They knew the entire Old Testament, first five books of the Bible by heart could recite it on a street corner. Anybody here can do that? No. No. Like our righteousness, our, our, our righteousness in front of people will never be as good as the Pharisees. They were addicted to this stuff, right? So I think that's part of the reason they're asking this question. Honestly, like when they come to Jesus asking about when the kingdom of God would come, I can actually empathize with them a little. I can empathize, empathize with them a little because who doesn't want to know when God will bring his work of redemption to completion? Just look at yourself. 
Look at yourself. Look at your marriage. Look at your friendships. Look at your family. Look at your practices. Look at the thoughts of your mind. Look at the desires and the affections of your heart. Look at what you hope for. Look at what you long for. Look at what disappoints you. Don't you, just like me, ask often, Jesus, when will you complete this work and when will it be over? When will we get to be in heaven where there is no more mourning, no more tears, no more crying, no more suffering, no more hardship? When will that happen? So I can empathize with these dudes when they ask the question, right? The Pharisees have this problem, though. But the problem with them is the same problem that we have. Like, we really just want to have all the answers so that we can, A, look better, B, feel superior, and C, be in the know, right? Jesus says, hey, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. In other words, you don't find your way into the kingdom of God through some external practice or some external composure or some external experience. It's not about the externals. It's about the internal. It's about the inner working of the Spirit in your life. Is He at work in you? Because Jesus is like, hey, you're looking everywhere out there for the work of the kingdom. And the reality is you should be looking inside to see what's happening inside of you. Because here I am, right in front of you, right in your midst, willing to do a work. And you just don't look at it. You just don't look at it. This is why Jesus confidently continues by saying this. He says, nor will they say, look, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. In other words, the kingdom of God isn't found by external work. It's not found by external learning. All the books that you and I could read won't matter. Although I still advocate for reading books because I love to read books, right? Sure, great way to learn. If that's all it is for you, it's just some mere theological concept or construct or idea so that you can talk about it more. There's nothing happening in your heart. Then you gotta go back to square one and probably get saved to start with. And trust in Jesus first and hear the gospel. The kingdom of God is entered into by beholding or turning our attention to Jesus, who is standing right in front of us. And Jesus is essentially saying, Hey, don't miss out. Don't miss out on what I'm doing in your midst, what I want to do in your heart. Don't miss out on what I want to do in you simply because you have a desire to have all the answers. That's worry number one. Worry number two is don't be led astray. Verses 22 to 25. Jesus turns his attention from the Pharisees. I, I kind of love this picture of the Pharisees and the disciples all kind of sitting there. I can just kind of see them sitting together in this circle, right? Like the, the disciples have already asked this question basically a couple chapters ago. If you just look back, basically already asked this question. Hey, hey, when, when, when's this going to happen? Like, like when's the kingdom going to come? Like, when are you going to take over? Like, when are you going to lay all the bad dudes to waste? Like, when are you going to put the white cowboy hat on and the six shooters and stomp out in the middle of the street like Wyatt Earp and just blow all the bad guys away, right? He's basically asked that question. They've asked that question already. And Jesus basically gives them the same answer. So I can see the disciples. As the Pharisees come now, because they weren't there, and they're like, hey, Jesus, hey, Jesus, when, when will the kingdom come? And I can just see the disciples like, oh, oh I can't wait. I can't. Watch this. Wait till you wait. Wait for it. Oh, boom, there it is. <laughs> Mic drop, right? That's what I think the disciples are doing in the background. So now he turns his attention to them, knowing that he's already asked that first. They've already asked that question of him. And he warns them. He warns them not to be led astray by their desire for instant gratification. 
Our disciples are really no different than any of us. That's the reality. They still struggled with hardship. They still struggled with suffering. They still struggled with difficulty in this life. And as a result, because of that, they would begin to long for the return of Christ to bring an end to the suffering and the hardship they were facing. Even the Apostle Paul, further ahead in Scripture, in the book of Philippians, chapter 1, verses 21 through 24, he says this. Listen, catch this. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet, which shall I choose? I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. Listen, my desire. And if you believe that every word of Scripture is anointed and powerful and written by God and the very words of God meant for your soul and my soul and your heart and my heart, you believe that? And when Paul uses this word, my desire... My desire is to depart and be with Christ. That is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. But do you understand where we're at in the text right now as, as, I, as I pose this to you? Like, can you imagine Paul writing this from prison? He's writing that from prison. My desire is to leave, but it's better that I stay. Like, that's, that's not what we wrestle with. We don't, we don't wrestle with that. Like, we wrestle with, man, my desire is to eat a cheeseburger or read some scriptures. Eh. Right? If my desire is to go smoke some dope or, man, repent and surrender. My desire is to go sleep with a bunch of women or maybe I could show up in a gospel community. Like, those are the desires we wrestle with. Paul's desire in this passage is he's locked up for preaching the gospel too hard, mind you. Jews hated him, right? Paul preaching that from, from prison in the midst of great persecution and hardship. Paul refused to be led astray by any desire for instant gratification. Can you imagine the instant gratification that Paul could get just by saying, please get me out of this prison. I'm not very happy here chained in this prison where I got to sit around in my own feces, right? Locked up and chained to some guard. This is just an echo or a ripple as you think of Paul and what he says. An echo or a ripple of what Jesus is saying in this passage. Jesus' disciples says, the days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man and you will not see it. Here's the deal. Like, we will all have our days when we slump into despair because of the hardship of our lives. We will all be tempted at some point to give into the desires for instant gratification that Jesus warns us not to be led astray. It reminds us that many people, many people will say, look there. Look here. Not go out or follow them. Do not go out or follow them. Kind of reminds me again of the Apostle Paul later, standing with the Ephesian elders, looking into the faces of men who were leading the church and saying, hey, there will be some who will rise up from among you. Like he's pointing at them. There will be some who will rise up from among you that will speak and preach perverse things and seek to draw you away from the gospel. Right? Don't go follow. Don't go follow. It's a ripple of what Jesus is saying here. True believers won't need to listen to pop culture theology that touts instant gratification through escapism theology. 
permeates the evangelical landscape. I don't know if any of you guys have ever seen those uh, Left Behind books or Left Behind movies. This is a, probably a secondary issue, but it fits here because all of that series is based on this passage of Scripture. Left Behind series kind of propagates this. Um, at some point, things are going to get so bad in the tribulation, like just read Revelations and Matthew and the other Gospels and go back to Daniel and do all these cross-references, right? And they kind of propagate this idea that things are going to get so bad someday, this is what's going to happen. Jesus is going to come, he's going to rapture all the good people out and leave all the bad people back here to taste fire and condemnation. Um, and it's based on this passage. And, and the reality is, I think nothing can be further from the truth. I think that series is absolute heresy. I think it should be burned. That's called I think. That's what I think. Doesn't mean you have to think that. Although, I would argue with you all night long over a cup of coffee or a really great beer that you should burn those books if you have them. Because all it promotes is this. All it promotes is that if you follow Jesus, it's all going to be unicorns and rainbows, and Jesus is going to come get you and take you away, and screw all those bad people who are going to get left behind. You ain't got to do anything with them. In fact, if you do anything with them, they're going to get you all dirty. You shouldn't be around them anyways. Just wait for Jesus to come back and rescue you and ransom you. Yeah, that flies in the face of the fact that Jesus came from a perfect place called heaven to a dirty place called earth to die on a cross, right? Right? It, it flies in the face of the actual gospel that you read in scriptures. That's why I'm so passionate about this. And it actually fits because it's actually from this passage, right? Right? Like, here's the reality. You and I, if you are in Christ, if you're in Christ, you are now an object of God's love. God is lavishing his love upon you in Christ Jesus because you're now a son or daughter. And Paul in Ephesians is very clear that if you are not trusting in Christ, then you are an enemy, Right? You are an enemy of God. An enemy of God does not receive lavish love. Receives judgment. Right? Judgment. Destruction. Look at warning three. Leads us right into that. Warning three is don't miss the boat. Jesus warns his disciples not to miss the boat because they're desirous to live in the moment. And he gives them this warning in the form of a reminder. What he does is he reminds them of the days of Noah. Everybody know the story of Noah? Noah built a boat, right? Goofy dude out there building a boat after like having like a ton of years of no rain. It's in the middle of a drought. And the dude's out there basically preaching a sermon with a bunch of nails and a couple of wood, a couple of pieces of wood and a hammer. And the sermon he's preaching is, hey, God wants to rescue you. And at the same time, he's going to destroy in a moment all who are living Sinfully and refusing to turn to him. That's the message being preached in, Noah, in the story of Noah. And so Jesus reminds them of this story. He says, just as it was in the days of Noah, so will be in the days of the Son of Man. In other words, it's okay to long for the return of Christ to rescue us from this evil age, but it's not okay to be consumed, so consumed with escaping this evil world that all we do is live with our heads in the clouds, Right? Built this boat for years during that time when there was no rain. People mocked him. People mocked him for being obedient to God's word. Jesus tells us that the people of Noah's day were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. And in regards to the days of Christ's return, Jesus wants us to know that it will be the same. It will be the same when he returns as it was in the days of Noah. 
right? That's what he's saying. It will be the same, and I don't want you to miss the boat. People will go about their business as usual. People will go on sinning as usual. People will carry on with their lives as usual. People will even mock the people of God or mock God just as they did in the days of Noah. But then without any further warning, warnings are over, right? Without any further warning, people won't even know what hit them. It'll be over. Mass destruction. Jesus is warning us in this section not to miss the boat because of our desire to just live in the moment and ignore his warnings. It's not just that. Warning number five, four is don't look back. Warning number four is don't look back. Jesus warns his disciples not to look back because of the desire for the good old days. You ever do that? Reminisce about the good old days? Ever miss some of the days of your youth? But it's interesting, like in this portion of the text, how, how Jesus communicates this warning because he does it, Cassius, he does it by looking back, right? Hey, yo, I want to teach you something. Here's a warning. Don't look back. But by the way, I'm going to teach you not to look back by asking you to look back and remember Lot's wife. Remember Lot's wife? Now I get this picture of Lot and his wife living in this place called Sodom and Gomorrah, right? When Jesus asks us to look back, he does it so that we can learn to live differently. Not to reminisce about all of our old sinful patterns. He says, hey, you remember the good old days of Lot and his wife? In those days, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained down from heaven and destroyed them all. So it will be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. Likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. What happened to Lot's wife when she looked back? What happened to her? Turned to salt. She got destroyed. Let's get this picture of Lot and his wife in Sodom and Gomorrah. They're living in the midst of this real sinful city and the angels of God come to him and, and they're like hey man destruction's about to happen let us preach the gospel of being rescued and saved from that and let us say you need to leave this place and never look back and I just get this picture of Lot like just dragging his wife and kids out of town right and Lot's wife is continuously looking back I miss my old friends I, 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 I miss my I miss my old uh, habits I miss those old groups I was part of. Turned her floor off. She was destroyed on the spot for her lack of faith and her lack of obedience. That's the message that Jesus is preaching in this text. Our lack of faith can actually destroy us. She was trying to straddle the fence of following Jesus while holding on to the good old days of her life and sob. Are you hearing this morning? Are you hearing this warning? Don't look back because you desire the good old days. Because if you do look back, then you stand in danger of being destroyed. Do you desire your old life from yesterday? Do you desire your old sins of last night? Are you constantly looking over your shoulder instead of looking ahead to the new life in Christ that God has called you to? Don't look back. And the Apostle Paul is clear throughout Ephesians and Colossians that if you've trusted in Christ and if you've hoped in Him, then you've now placed your hope and your trust and your belief in a place that is secure. He 
Christ. And what he promises is to take you out of the old life and give you a new life. And people who have been given new life live in that without looking back at the old life. It's what we do. Why? Have you ever lived in that place of your life where you're like, man, this stinking sucks. And then you've got a new life? Why would you want to go back? That's the implication of this text is don't look back. Trust in Christ and walk forward and be transformed and be renewed and be reconciled and be restored and be made completely new. Don't look back. Warning number five, final warning is don't get separated. Jesus warned his disciples not to get separated from the kingdom of God because of their desire for self-preservation. This is actually what he says. This, whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. In other words, if we get caught up in all of our desires for self-preservation and self-promotion in this life, and this will happen, we will get separated from God's kingdom. Verses 34 to 37. Look at it carefully. Jesus says, I tell you, in that night there will be two in one bed. Two in one bed. It's like a husband and wife. Two in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. There will be two women grinding together. One will be taken and the left. And they, the disciples said to him, where, Lord? He said to them, where the corpse is, there the vultures were gathered. Here's the whole crux of the text. One word. Where? Where? If you're tracking with me through this passage, you can, you can look at this question in three different ways. And this is the whole difficulty of this passage. If you're tracking... Are the disciples asking, where will the destroyed be taken? Or are they asking, where will the good guys be taken? Or are they asking, where will this destruction happen? I think because they already asked when, I think they're asking, where will this happen? Because he wraps it up by saying, where the corpse is, there the vultures in other words, Jesus is telling the disciples that when he returns, there will be judgment. And unbelievers will be separated from believers, which causes the disciples to ask where this judgment will take place. Like, hey, judgment's going to happen like in the days of Noah? Like it's going to happen like in Sodom where Lot and his wife were, right? I don't want to be anywhere close to there. Wouldn't you say the same? So tell me where that's going to happen so I'm not anywhere close to it because I don't want to get burned up. Jesus is like, oh, answer to your question, where? Where the stench of death is. That's where the vultures gather. So the question for every one of us as we listen to this warning from this passage is this. Have you heard the warnings of Scripture and have you received them joyfully and receptively to the extent that you have said, Jesus, you are my Savior. I need you to save me and change me so I'm not there when that happens. Like the whole concept of death is this. Like Romans is clear that the outcome of our sin is death. The payment for your sin and the payment for my sin is death. Like if the gospel is alive at work in you, then what's obvious to other people around you is the aroma of life, meaning you smell like you're alive. Simple, right? But if the gospel is not at work in you, then when someone preaches the gospel to you, 
and corrects you and warns you, then the smell and the aroma of your life is that of death. And guess who gathers there? Vultures. And if the vultures gather there, guess what's coming? Destruction. Judgment. Just like in the days of Noah, just like in the days of Lot. What's the five warnings from Scripture? What's the five warnings in regards to the kingdom? The question is, are we hearing this warning? Don't get separated from the kingdom of God because of your desire for self-preservation. You cannot preserve your life by getting a better spouse. You cannot preserve your life by getting a better house, a better car, a better friend, better kids, a better bank account, better belongings. That kind of self-preservation will kill you. The only chance that you and I have for not getting separated from the kingdom of God and thrown into a place of destruction because of our sin is to trust in Jesus who gave his life so that we could be set free to live as God asks us to, which is to live in a way in which we love God and love others around us. The basic message of scripture is that if you receive the gospel, you receive the love of Christ made obvious in the cross of Christ as he gives his perfect self on behalf of your sinful and rebellious self who deserve destruction, what you get instead is a gift of grace. And that gift of grace is life. It's a second chance. It's a second chance. Are you hearing this warning? Let me pray. Jesus, thank you for our time. Luke's Gospel, thank you for these five warnings. Father, I pray that you would take them and apply them to our hearts. God, I pray that you would just root out idolatry as one commentator said. And our hearts are like idol factories every day, finding new desires, new longings, new affections that we can chase after. All we need is you. Lord, I pray that you would help us to hear these warnings from your word. Help us to respond with, with joy. Help us, help us to respond in a way that is receptive. Help us to trust in you. Help us to hope in you. Lord, all of us here have hoped in things that are broken rather than hoping in you who are secure. In Jesus' name, amen. As we close tonight, guys, we'll, we'll close in worship. We'll close with communion. There will be two near the front to serve you communion. You may come down to the front. Take communion. You don't have to be a member of the church to take communion, but you do have to be a Christian. Otherwise, this is a real mindless activity for you to do that. We're glad you're here. Glad you're hearing the message of the gospel, praying that God leads you to repentance and salvation. Do it. And that moment could be now. That's now if you're saying, you know what, right now I trust in Jesus. Then you're part of the family because you can trust in your belief. And you can come, you can partake in communion, remembering remembering that this is symbolic. It doesn't save you. It doesn't change you. But it's symbolic. It's a reminder that Christ's body was broken and his blood was shed on your behalf when you and I were but enemies so we could become sons and daughters of God. So as you come, I encourage you to think upon Christ, his work at the cross. There will also be two near the front to pray with you if you have you're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com.